the great thing about running is it's all you, right? If your team does better in soccer, it might be you. It might be your team. Like, you could actually get worse and your team can get better. But if you are getting faster at running, it's, it's you. So the improvement feels, again, pretty intensely emotional. So that drew me in. That's Nicholas Thompson. And this is episode 63 of the Morning Shakeout Podcast. Hey everybody, it's your host, Mario Fraioli, and I'm excited to share a special live recording of the podcast that I did with Nicholas Thompson. He's the editor-in-chief of Wired Magazine in front of a live audience last month at Tracksmith's Track House in Boston, Massachusetts. In this conversation, Nicholas and I talked exclusively about aging and the marathon, which is a topic he's written about for Wired. Last fall, Nicholas, who is 43 years old, he ran not one, but two 238 marathons at Chicago and New York, only four weeks apart. And both of those races were faster than his previous personal best of 243. We recorded this episode the day before this year's Boston Marathon, where he ended up running 234.27 off a nice negative split, which, if you've run Boston, you know is not easy to do. This is not a long episode, only 35 minutes or so, but Nicholas has agreed to come back on another time so he can dig deeper into the role that running plays in his life, his journalism career, his love of music, and a lot more. Okay, here we go with Nicholas Thompson. to the Morning Shakeout podcast brought to you by Tracksmith. I'm Mario Fraioli. This is my guest, Nicholas Thompson. He's the editor-in-chief of Wired Magazine, a 238 marathoner at the age of 43. He ran that last fall at two races, New York City in November and then a month prior to that in Chicago. And we're going to have a conversation mostly about aging in the marathon and who knows where it'll go from there. Um, but last fall, you ran 238 at Chicago. And a month later, you ran 238 at New York, and those are personal bests for you. You were a 243 marathoner at the age of 30 and were more or less stuck there until last fall, and then you have this tremendous breakthrough where you take five minutes off your marathon PB twice within a month. What were you on? (laughs) Beet juice. I mean, I, uh, what happened was I just sort of picked up the intensity. The way I train is pretty simple. I commute into work, I commute home from work, and then I run long on the weekends. And so what I actually started to do is training more seriously and started doing speed workouts and ran a few 800s and a couple mile repeats and some tempo runs. So nothing too out of the ordinary for the folks in this room, but it was just increasing the intensity level by 10%, 15%, and made the, made the big breakthrough. So there we go. Conversation's over. Thanks for coming out. Awesome podcast. Thank you, Mario. It's a pleasure being here. Um, when did you decide that you wanted to commit yourself to going after a personal best last fall? You know, okay, so the slightly more interesting answer of my running career. So I start um, I start running marathons when I'm about 30, so in 2005, and I run a 243, um, and then I get really sick, and I have to stop. And then when I get healthy again a year later, um, it becomes part of my psychology. Like it becomes really important to keep running, and it becomes kind of important to sort of stay where I was. And when I run another 2:43 two years later, it feels you know emotionally cathartic to have come back to where I was before I got sick. And so then, basically every year, I just ran the New York Marathon 
um, and I would always run it like 242, 243, um, and then I started to get slower at about age 37 or 38, and I think I went 245, 245, 246, 245, um, and so then I thought, okay, it, it would be nice to stop this age-related decline, right, because there's a pretty clear a minute per year slower chart, um, and so at age 43, I said, all right, let me, let me see if I could really focus and get faster, and so I set this sort of absurd goal of two hours plus my age in minutes. Uh, and so I was 42 at the time. I was going to break 242. And then around that time, someone from Nike reached out and said, hey, you want to have some advice from some of our coaches, which was, was sort of random. Or not random. I mean, the editor of Wired, right? They have an interest in communicating with journalists. Um, but it was the fact that it coincided with my resetting of that goal was, uh, was random. So I said, yes. I started talking to these guys. They gave me a training plan. I followed it. And there we are. And prior to that, had you planned on changing anything about your training from past buildups, or were you just going to do the same thing and try to do it a little bit faster and hope that got you to sub 242? Yeah, it was more the latter. In fact, it's funny. I was, you know, I keep notes after every marathon, and I was looking through them before every new marathon. And so this morning, I was looking at my notes from after like the two, 2015, 2016 marathons, and it was like, walk up the stairs more, do more push ups, right? It wasn't like do tempo runs and speed workouts. Let's Not go. that I'd never heard of tempo runs and speed workers. I just didn't do them very often. And I would do them while I was commuting home. I'd be like, okay, I'm going to run fast across the Brooklyn Bridge. My office is in lower Manhattan. I live in Park Slope, Brooklyn. So it's like a four and a half mile run. I'll sometimes add two miles going down the financial district. And so I would just sort of run all like two miles on the Henry Hudson bike path fast and then run across the Brooklyn Bridge fast. But I wasn't doing structured stuff. Let's go back to the origins of your running career. Yeah. You didn't start running at age 30. No. You just picked up marathons at age 30. When did you first get into the sport? Um, it's, I think with everybody, running's like, a, it's a very emotional sport and there's some really interesting touch points. So, my father is a runner. You know, runs. I remember watching him run a three-hour marathon when I was seven. And so I would run like a mile or two um, with him when I was like six or seven. And then my parents got divorced and he left and I stopped. And then in high school, I got cut from the basketball team and I felt kind of like a loser and then I started running track and did well and felt really good. And then I went to college and was kind of a failure on the team so I felt like a loser again. So there's like a three-year window where I feel really great about running from about age 15 to 18. Uh, and then I sort of stop, you know, I run it. I do run, I stay healthy, but I don't really do hard workouts or a marathon until I'm 30. And what was the appeal of signing up for that marathon when you were 30? Um, I don't know. You'd have to dig deep into my psychology. So it's partly a desire to get faster. It's partly the encouragement of my father, who was still alive back then, thought it was really cool that I'd started running and was running quickly again. I joined a track club, Central Park Track Team, Central Park Track Club. Um, uh, I had a bunch of friends there, so I would train with them every now and then. And then the same appeal for everybody, right? You start to run, you get faster, right? The great thing about running is it's all you, right? If your team does better in soccer, it might be you, it might be your team. Like you could actually get worse and your team can get better, but if you are getting faster at running, it's, it's you. So the improvement feels, again, pretty intensely emotional. So that drew me in. And what kept you with it for the next decade plus as you were just running 242, 243 over and over and over again? <laughs> hmm. that's, that's, a, that's a funny question. Um, no, so, right, so, the, okay, so why, the reason to run is it makes you feel healthy, it makes you feel good, you see, you see places, you know, part of the reason I run is the, the knowledge that if I'm in, in shape that I can go someplace where I'm traveling and my work takes me traveling a lot and I can go run up a mountain or I can go and explore. So I love that side to it. 
the reason not to run is that it takes up a lot of time. There's, you know, if you have a hard job, like why have a hobby that obliterates you, right? So there are reasons not to do it. Um, but the balance, I had a pretty good balance. I would just run one marathon a year, take six months where I would just commute a couple days a week to and from, start picking it back up again in July. So it's fairly easy to keep that steady, that steady balance. The hard question is now, like, as I start to decline, or as I'm definitely in the decline, well into it at age 43, do I continue to try to get faster, or at some point do I just say, enough of this? But when you say decline, you ran PBs last fall. Right. So I'd push back against that a little bit. Is it a is it a physical decline? Is it a mental decline? It's just the knowledge that my body, whatever I could have run in optimal fitness, that moment has passed. Right? I could still definitely get faster, but you have to train even harder to go a little bit faster as you get older. But it's still pretty cool to be going the other direction from the aging. So Nike reaches out to you last year. They want to help you achieve this marathon goal of setting a personal best. What do they tell you right away? <laughs> yeah, okay, so um, I go in, let's see, the first thing The first thing that happens that was kind of memorable is I go into the gym to meet with this trainer, this guy named Joe Holder. If anybody's on Instagram, he's the incredibly handsome guy doing knee hugs. And uh, he has me do some stretches and I like can't touch my knees. Uh, and he's sort of flabbergasted that I don't know how to do a squat or a lunge. Um, so we start dealing with that a little bit. Um, then I meet with a guy named Steve Finley, who's a wonderful Brooklyn coach. We start to talk about workouts. We start to talk about the advantages of tempo workouts. He wants me to do, I haven't done, I haven't run a quarter since, you know, since freshman year of college. He wants me to start doing some quarter mile repeats um, to really increase the speed, to get myself comfortable at running at five minute pace, 520 pace, thinking that will help me in the marathon. And then they lay out a whole set of workouts. I mean, I only see them a couple times, uh, but mostly it's just an Excel spreadsheet that I follow every day. And when you got into the workouts and shifted your training in that way, how long did it take before you started noticing a difference in your running? Not very long at all. I remember doing a um, five by one mile workout. I, so let's see. So I started running their workouts in July of last year, so three months before Chicago. And in August, I ran a five by one mile workout and broke five minutes in the mile, which is probably the first time I've done that since college. And I was like, whoa, what's going on? Right? Like even running a little bit of fast stuff makes you faster. And do you think you responded so well because you had just you had not changed the stimulus for so long? Yeah, I think that's it. I mean, I had been had such a habit. My body was so used to certain workouts and certain kinds of training that giving something new gave you a joke. Like somebody who hasn't had coffee and has like the first cup of coffee in three years, it's like, oh my god. <laughs> well, and then the other side of it is is the recovery side of it. So if yeah. you're throwing this new stimulus at yourself, you're doing harder workouts. Um, how are you feeling, aside from seeing your times getting faster, you're like, okay, this is exciting. I think I can go faster in the marathon. Were you more tired? Were you more? Were you actually more energized by throwing in these, these workouts? How did you account for that side of it? I think I was a little more energized. I think it was exciting. It was fun to be trying something new. It's also good. Like when you're old, older, you having a new stimulus and a new way of doing something, it's like going on, going on a vacation and seeing a new city for the first time. It's a cool experiment. And to also be doing these other workouts and to be doing, you know, lunches and, you know, planks, <laughs> all this foreign stuff. Uh, it felt really cool. And did you have any sense of regret that you hadn't started doing this stuff earlier? Yeah, of course. Um, right. I mean, part of your, your brain is like, oh my God, if I'd started doing this earlier, I could have run a few minutes faster, but no, I mean, I'm totally at, at, at peace with like not having run, I don't know, 234, right? What's the, it's, I, 
running has been a joy the whole time I've been doing it, so I feel good about that. And the fact that I can keep doing it, you know, 15 years after I started taking it seriously is great. What do you think you could have run if you had started doing a lot of that stuff sooner? I don't know, five minutes faster? It's like low 230s? Yeah, something like that. I don't know. When you started working with Nike, another big change was the data side of it. Yeah. Um, I know prior to that, you ran with a basic chronological watch, just track time. Yeah. Um, you knew your commute was four and a half miles, but beyond that, and whatever you wrote in your journal, you really weren't analyzing too much. And they changed that side of it for you. How eye-opening was it when you started to see hard numbers that were tied to your training? It was pretty eye-opening. I'd never run with a heart rate monitor. I mean, so they have me, they put a little heart rate monitor on my arm. I put a little sensor on my back so you can measure your vertical oscillation. We put little sensors on my shoes to measure pronation. Um, I started tracking it all in Garmin. The only data that was really helpful was the heart rate data, um, which, and at that point, I was still using their heart rate monitor, which was accurate. I had to mail it back after the marathon just because as a journalist, you can't keep this stuff, and I have yet to find a good heart rate monitor since then. Um, But it was... It was extremely useful. So my relationship to data had always been that I don't want to spend, my challenge with running was I want to spend the minimal amount of time I can with getting the maximum benefit. Like my goal for every marathon was in my head to feel like no one who finished ahead of me had spent less time on the sport, right? And one of the, (laughs) because you have a hard job and you've got a lot to do and I've got three little kids, so I really want to, that's why I run commute, right? It's the sort of the most efficient way and I listen to podcasts or books related to my job while I run. Um, and I had this fear that tracking my data would then suck me in, and right that every night I'd be like ch- checking in what my heart rate had been in during my particular workout and whether my vertical oscillation had gone up and my vertical oscillation had gone up, what that meant. Um, so I was slightly worried about the data. But once I was working with Nike and it was sort of a project and was actually part of my job because I was going to write about it, it was really fun. <laughs> As you start analyzing this data, your training has changed quite a bit. You've got the Chicago Marathon coming up. You wanted to run two hours plus your age, which was 242. Did you realize early on in that process that, all right, I I know I'm going to run 242. I should start aiming quite a bit higher than that. Yeah, the other thing about data is that when you have data on your physiology and you have sports scientists at Nike who are looking at that data and they're telling you you can go faster, you know you can go faster, right? Whether it's a placebo effect and they were lying, like they could have not looked at a bit of my data. They probably could have told me I was going to run a 234 and I would have run a 234, right? They, they could have just manipulated me into running whatever I want. But I did sit down. That belief. Right, so there's the guy and he's like analyzing Kipchoge's data in the morning and then he looks at me and he's like, hey, you should be able to run like a 238. So I ran a 238. How do you strike the balance between you know, this, this data, which is telling you that you can do something you haven't done before and not paying attention to it so it doesn't take away from the enjoyment. You don't become a slave to the watch and slave to the numbers. That's a, that's a hard question. Um, you try hard not to get too sucked into it. You try not to worry too much about it. And certainly when I ran Chicago, I had a little bit of fear um, that I was, that I actually wasn't going to be able to run a 238 and that I would, you know, I had probably run eight marathons where I had expected to run a 240 and then ended up somewhere between 241 and 243. Um, and so it wasn't really until the very end of that race that I knew I was going to do it. I mean, I started that race off uh, and I remember I was like, okay, I'm not going to look at my watch. I'm going to be nice and calm. It's all going to be good. And I'm just going to go out. I'm going to find somebody who looks like they're fit. I'm going to stay behind them and draft. And so I go through and I go through the first mile. I'm like, okay, that felt good. Let's look at my watch. And it's like 640. I was like, oh, shit. (laughs) Um, Anyway, so I tried to stay steady and calm in part 
for all the reasons marathoners stay steady and calm, and also in part because I didn't want to blow it. Um, and knowing that in multiple other marathons, I had faltered. Take me through the latter stages of the race. How did your mindset evolve as the miles wore on? I think I just started getting more confidence that I would get better. You know, you look at your watch, it's like 557, 558. You're like, oh, that's pretty good. That felt pretty good. And about mile 20, I was like, oh, my God, I'm really suffering. Right? All marathoners, oh, my God, I'm like my IT band injury is coming back. The ingrown toenail is coming back. My knee hurts, my back hurts. And then you're like, no, I'm fine. Just relax. Um, I felt good all the way through. I don't remember ever feeling that terrible. I felt fueled, hydrated. It's all good. So you'd set this goal for yourself. Tell me about what you experienced when you're coming across the line. You saw 238 on the I was, clock. I was so happy. I was. It was more. I think it was probably when I went through like 25, and I knew that I was going to run a personal best or certain like. And even if I had like collapsed, then they just everybody here has run a personal best. Like the moment you know you're locked into it is sometime before the line, and you just you feel like, well, that was worth it. I could put all this time in to try to do it, and this is good. And my kids had come to Chicago to watch, and that was really fun. So you've got New York a month later. Yeah. Arguably a harder course than Chicago. What were you thinking in the four weeks in between as far as how you would approach New York? Were you just happy to be there because you had checked this, you know, yeah, time even, off, of your, off of your list? Or? I didn't decide to run it until probably eight or nine days out. So I ran, I did Chicago, and we had a big Wired Festival a couple days later. And we had, like, a run scheduled as part of it, so I went on an eight-mile run, and I felt fine. I was like, oh, I'm recovered fine from Chicago. And then I had some terrible... I tried to run a couple workouts, like, two weeks out, and they were terrible, and then it was a Friday night, so it would have been, whatever that is, nine days before the race, and I pretty much decided I wasn't going to run New York, and I put the kids to sleep, and I was like, I'm going to go outside and try a progression run, like a 16-mile run on a familiar course, and I did great. I was like, all right, screw it. I'm going to run New York. I'm going to taper the next eight days. Um, I'd register. Like, it's fun. Like, New York was by my house. All three, only two of my kids had come to Chicago, so all three of them could watch me in New York. I didn't, I didn't actually think I was going to run as fast. And then New York was a crazy experience. I took it out. Just being like, okay, I'm going to run just 240, low 240s. And then um, hugely negative split it and felt awesome in the last five miles. So it was fine. You've got Boston on... Monday. What are you hoping to do? I want to run uh, better than six minutes per mile, so 237, but we'll see. I like, I, like probably everybody in this room, I've refreshed weather.com, you know, <laughs> several hundred times, right? And I know that if like, the wind is blowing like from the east, I'm going to run like a 310, and if it's blowing from the west, I'm going to run like a 220, so <laughs> we'll see. Stay right? Okay. Yeah. It's, it's hilarious, though. We've gone from, right, they've delayed, they've combined wave four and wave three because of hypothermia-inducing cold. Yesterday, it's, like, blistering hot to run. Like, it's going to be in the 70s. The wind is either in our face or behind our backs. So, yeah, I'm definitely going to run 237.12. Exactly that. Hold you to it. Um, how did you recover from those back-to-back -back marathons in the fall? Weirdly fine. You know, I was out running again maybe a week later, had no injury. Oh, not, I mean, I had like slight abdominal strain, but nothing, never missed a day of running. I think one, one thing that I'm fortunate with is that I was a musician before, um, in my, before I was a journalist, and so I had to learn a lot of posture in order to not get injured while running, oh, sorry, while playing music, and I think that has helped me never have a real uh, injury problem running. Is that something that you focus on now in your training? Is 100 working on your mechanics? Yeah, here I'm like slouched with my legs crossed. But yeah, every um, I'm constantly when I'm running, and even when I'm racing, thinking about Alexander technique, which is basically a technique of keeping your head aligned with your neck and your backs and your leg your legs aligned 
and I'm thinking about all of the different positions I learned while being a musician uh, as I run, which I think helps a ton with injury prevention. So you're hoping to go faster Monday at Boston. How many, how much more runway do you think you have to improve upon the times that you ran last fall? I think there's probably a lot of runway. I think the harder question is when I decide to just stop, right? Or when I decide to stop making this a huge emotional commitment and a part of my identity. And that could happen at any moment. There might be a time like <laughs> my best friend is like, you know, ever since you started running seriously, your music's gotten worse, right? There's like an interesting, like, and he knows me as well as anybody, right? There is like, there are interesting trade-offs. You put a lot into the sport, it gives you less time for other stuff. And I try to be as efficient as possible with the run community and the podcast and this and that. But there's no question, it takes a lot of emotional energy. So I think the most likely scenario is that at some point I say, okay, I love this thing, I'll keep jogging, but I'm done with like trying to go faster. Did that emotional connection change when you flipped the switch prior to Chicago last fall and said, okay, I'm gonna follow the advice of a coach, I'm gonna analyze my data a little bit more, I'm gonna pay attention to the little things that I was neglecting for the last 12 years? <laughs> yeah, totally did. I mean, this is the first year where I've run a spring marathon, right? Usually I just run a fall marathon and then chill out for seven months. And there was something about exactly the trend that you talked about, like, oh, you got faster, can I still get faster, right? How much faster can I get? Like, ooh, could I get there, right? And there's that, you know, is part of the addictive process of running, right? And again, back to what I said earlier, where it is so much on you and not on a team, the allure of getting faster is, is a real emotional pull. And so the fact that I did it in the fall has definitely sucked me in deeper. And who knows, after Boston, we'll see what my reaction is. You mentioned earlier how you integrate your training into your commute so that doesn't take away from your job, from your family. But, you know, being that invested, not just from a time standpoint, but emotionally, has it changed your relationship at all with your family or with your colleagues at work when you're, don't, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but constantly thinking about, I'm trying to better myself to get to this goal? I don't think so. I try to... Uh, yeah. You know, certainly all my colleagues, at my last job, there were lots of colleagues who didn't know I ran, right? Um, now they do, because I've written about it, um, but or because I show up in shorts. Um, but uh, I, I, I don't think it, it seeps into that. My kids think it's really cool. I'm super excited, my eight-year-old. Those, uh, I have at least one friend here who follows me on Strava, I have noticed that I've been running a lot of like 11-minute miles. Um, and it's because he's been trying to peak for a soccer tryout, and so we've been going on like these two-mile runs together, which has been really fun. So it's great to have the sport and be able to do it with my kids. Cool. I think that's a great place to wrap things up. Any questions from you. the crowd on aging and the marathon that you'd like to ask Nick? If you run 235, what do you think it'll do to your music? To my music. <laughs> it's funny, I, I, you know, part of, like, I do legitimately sometimes, run, like, you can't have too many hobbies that you've invested really emotionally. I feel like, so, I feel like it is probably a fair critique that I don't think running really affects my job in a negative way or the rest of my life, but I do think it affects my other hobbies. And so I sometimes do wonder if I should turn off the running switch and turn back on the music switch. Like, I haven't recorded, I used to record albums of used to guitar music, I haven't done one in since I started running, <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, and you can come with other reasons for that, but it's kind of, the correlation is pretty pretty tight, right? I recorded the first one right after I quit the college cross-country team the next year, and then I recorded pretty steadily until I started running. So, I don't know. Th throwing a different question. What's some low-hanging fruit for aging marathoners that they can start addressing in their training that can either help them, you know, maybe break through to a PR performance, but if nothing else, just 
feel better during training, recover better from workouts, get more out of them, etc. I guess the interesting thing for an aging runner, as you get older and as you get past, right, you pass whatever your peak year is, I think one bit of good advice that I was sort of inadvertently given is try something new, right? Find the thing that works, right? There are elements of my training that did work, right? The mileage, like 50 miles a week is a good number of miles. Maybe go a little higher. Um, running to work is a really good life hack. Um, but then trying something new, adding the tempo runs, adding the 400s was a wonderful addition. So it was a combination of old and new, and I think that's probably good, right? If you're an aging runner, you know what works, you know what doesn't work. Um, and then adding something extra. You said you ran 400s back in college. What was your uh, background? Were you a distance runner? Yeah, I just ran the, uh, the 400s were just part of the, um, I was a two-miler and miler in high school, and then at college, I, had I been successful and made it into any races, I probably would have run the longer end of the races, like the 10K. But I redshirted my freshman year and then quit, because I stunk. <laughs> you wrote about the, the Boston Marathon course, yeah. I guess like last week or so. Yeah. And White goes into it, just slow runners down and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Have you been overanalyzing it all? <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Have I been overanalyzing it? Um, no. So the process there was, I'm going to run the Boston Marathon. If I write about it, it like makes the whole trip tax deductible, right? So... <laughs> what can I write in Wired about the Boston Marathon? I can't like preview the race, right? We're a technology magazine. Um, so I called up some runners and I called up sports scientists and wrote about the race. Um, the thing that actually terrifies me is that the article got posted on Let's Run and it, for some reason they posted Wired's Nicholas Thompson says the Boston Marathon is a terrible place to set a PR. And and so I saw that on the airplane this morning. I was like, oh, shit. And so in the comments, and then someone's like, who the hell is Nicholas Thompson? You know, what are his PRs? Who is he coached? What right does he have to tell me anything? And so I commented back, and I was like, hi, I'm Nick. And I've been terrified because those message boards, man, they get crazy. But uh, <laughs> maybe tomorrow morning I'm going to check, and there'll be some, like, nasty thread about, like, this horrible sad sack of a 238 guy, like, thinks he can say something about running. This is why you need a coach tell you to stay off the message yeah, stay boards. Off, stay <laughs> off the message boards. <laughs> My philosophy on the Internet is you go in there and you answer honestly and see what happens. Um, it tends to work out okay, except for when it doesn't, and then you, then you, then you turn it off. Just don't get riled up. Yeah. yeah. yeah um, so, moving for a little bit from the amateur realm into the pro realm in the marathon, what are your thoughts on age and that relationship with a marathon and pro athletes? We see Kim show, you know, he's... Um, without a doubt, the best marathon that's ever lived so yeah. far. But we see now younger, younger athletes making the move, like Julian Wonders, a Swiss kid, even a lot of East Africans that are taking it on at, a, at an early age and setting incredible times. Um, do, you, do you think that that myth, you need to be a certain age, have a certain amount of experience, either from the track or from just life, to be able to, to, to be successful at the marathon is, is wrong, or we, we have been looking at it the wrong way, or is there some truth to that? Yeah, that's a great question. Right? Is the move to the marathon and the success that young people are having because the world's energy is so much more invested in the marathon than it is in the track, right? And is that just pulling more and more young people in because more and more young people are being pulled in? Some of them are succeeding. My guess is that it's probably better to do the track and to build up those muscles, and there's such a high risk of injury with the marathon and such a high risk of, you know, on any one day, it can all go so badly for so many different reasons, and if you only get to run one or two a year, it's a really emotionally tricky event. If you run the 5K or the 10K, you can run a whole bunch of them during the year, so you can have ups and you can have downs, and so 
when you're kind of at an emotionally vulnerable younger age, it may not be best to run a marathon, right? And they get so invested in running a certain time and not be able to get it because the wind switched and was coming from the east and not the west. So I guess if I were a coach, I would say to young people, unless they're extremely mature, to stay on the track, stay on the roads, and then mid-20s start going to the marathon. I'm super interested, too, in the question of why, how some people like Abdi and Meb are able to keep going and perform at that level where other people like... You know, Ryan Hall flame out and move to weightlifting, right? It's a really interesting um, transition. Why some people are able to keep going and why some are not. Well, yeah, I was wondering, what's the most exciting piece of tech that you've seen in another industry that can benefit runners? It can benefit runners. Mm-hmm. Um, power meters, maybe? I mean, the... Right? Well, I guess I would have to say, like, I've actually... I mean, I know Nike was coaching me, but I do think the vapor flies help a lot, right? And so where does the insulation in the shoes come from? It comes from aircraft manufacturing. So maybe it's like, right, the question of how you have insulation that is both responsive and supportive, right? And so being able to test, I mean, so A, finding that insulation from whatever aircraft insulation they had, and then also the ability of all shoe manufacturers to... 3D model, print, and test their shoes and the different technology in the shoes. Like, obviously, there's a lot of hype, and maybe it's not what it, um, maybe they don't improve you as much as the marketing would have you, but I do think shoe technology has improved a lot in part because of technology, and that is one reason why people are going faster. If I can jump in, how about nutrition as you age? Has yours evolved on a day to day basis, and also what you're doing to fuel yourself for training and racing? Yeah, so. This, I interviewed Meb for this article in Wired, and he said the biggest thing in his changing, I asked him what, what changed as he got older, and he said it was nutrition, and that up until he was 30, his metabolism was so fast he could eat anything, and then after that, he really had to pay a lot more attention, which I thought was an interesting analysis. Your, your metabolism does slow down as you get older. It becomes a lot easier to put on weight, which, as we all know, slows you down when you're running a little bit. Um, my nutrition is, I try not to be hyper-neurotic about it, but it's pretty steady. I try to make it as simple as possible. I have a cereal that I mix and mix oatmeal and nuts and fruits in the mornings and same salad at lunch and then whatever my wife and I order after we're exhausted and put the kids to sleep for dinner. So that didn't necessarily change last fall? No, it didn't really change. I mean, they did have me, the Nike people did have me drink beet juice and eat more nitrates. They didn't think I was having enough nitrates, so I'll be having some spinach tonight and beet juice in the morning. Yeah. I'm just wondering if you could expand on you touched on Abdi and Meb, and I'm wondering what you think of the idea that maybe we underestimate what's possible into your 40s, yeah. almost because of like economic, structural reasons related to the elite side of the sport, where you can be Meb, you could be someone like Bernard Legat yeah. in your early 40s, running insanely fast times, but not times that necessarily are like sub-210 sponsorship levels. Mm-hmm. And you know they kind of retire gracefully, especially as it relates to someone like yourself where kind of at that sub-elite level you can have a much shorter training age if you take up the sport later. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if we kind of have almost a false statistical base to say that like once you hit your 40s there's a decline, especially for people who take it up. Yeah, that's a great question and a great topic, right? So why... Right, there are a bunch of hypotheses about why we get slower when we age, right? So one is, you know, cellular decay, right? We're all heading towards death, right? And there's like, of course we slow down as we age. And that is definitely part of it. 
But part of it is also just our lives get more complicated, right? And so one reason that runners slow down in their 30s is because they have kids. And so everybody who has kids knows it's way harder to organize your life, right? And you can't go running and you can't squeeze it in. And sometimes your kid has a cold and so you can't leave the apartment and, you know, the um, so you can't go running that afternoon or whatever it is, right? And so, or you get a job, right? And life intervenes. So another reason why we slow down as we age is because of that. And then a third reason is because we have the perception that we slow down as we age. This is part of what I was, when I was talking to Meb, was really trying to get at. And so if you're 25 and you run a bad marathon, you're like, I had a bad marathon, right? I'll do it again when I'm 26. If you're 35 and you have a bad marathon, you're like, oh man, I've got one foot in the grave, right? <laughs> and so I think there's like a psychological circularity to it. And that was part of what most interested me and why I was so interested in trying to get faster at 42 is the, oh, wait a second, like, I actually don't feel much older than I did at 32. It's not like going up the stairs is putting me out of breath and my back hurts. Like, maybe I, maybe I can do this. Maybe a lot of the age-related slowdown is psychological. And so that was part of what I was, part of what was driving me and I was most interested in as I started to go through the process last year of trying to get faster. How important is it, I mean, you did this, you switched up what you had been doing for so long and you saw a response in terms of your times, like you got faster, but did it make running more fun? Did it make it more interesting again to do things differently and change up your normal routine? Because I think a lot of runners get caught into that cycle of, I'll run two marathons a year, and for a while you start seeing some improvement, and eventually you plateau, but in order to break through, you've got to get out of it. Yeah, I think... And sometimes that can reignite your love for the sport or desire to train hard. Yeah, I never I never really lost the love for the sport. And the thing, that, the thing that reignites my love for the sport is less running a marathon PR than going on, like, an awesome mountain run. And, you know, I'll travel somewhere and I'll go run for four hours in the mountains. And that is... That's what I truly love. Like, I, I marathoning is great. I love PRing. But that... And being able to do that on a regular basis is... It's hard not to love running when you do that, and it's hard not to want to maintain the level of fitness that allows you to do that. So that's actually the, the key motivator. Questions from the crowd? Going once, going twice. All right, you ran two, two 38s, one at Chicago, one at New York City. They're two vastly different courses. Yeah. Um, you still have fatigue on your legs from Chicago. Um, how do you feel about that 238 in New York? All those Oh, the 238 in New York was better, right? I mean, but but the, the other difference, though, is weather, right? So New York was a perfect day last year, right? The wind was blowing from the south. It was like 45 degrees. And Chicago was kind of like rainy and wet and nasty. So, But the New York the New York race was definitely better, and in part because you know, I finished in whatever, like a 540 or something. Like, a, like, a very, like my fastest mile was 24 to 25, so it was a better executed race. Um, though also maybe I could have gone faster. I don't know. Not that much faster. <laughs> Yeah, going back to tech, will we ever see like the equivalent of a shark skin suit for running? <laughs> 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 so fast, yeah, probably. I mean, you can imagine. And this is the weird thing about shoes. Like, if a shoe really did make you four percent faster, that would be crazy, yeah. right? And that would be a total unfair advantage. I mean, they can't possibly make you four percent faster, right? Or else the elites would go, you know, whatever it is. If they're running a hundred and you know four minutes faster, they would all be going five minutes faster than they were, and they're not going five minutes faster than they were. Um, but if you really had that much of an improvement, um, that would kind of mess the sport up, and then it would be an entirely unfair advantage, and all the people wearing those shoes would win, the people weren't would lose. So 
I do I do think the Vaporfly shoes are very great. I think part of the reason I was able to recover between those two races probably has something to do with the shoes. It's certainly something they talk about. Um, if they gave you the real 4% advantage or if there ever is a shoe that really gives you a 4% advantage over other shoes, kind of mess our sport up. And part of what makes the sport so great, and part of the reason why I love the sport, is that it is so elemental, right? You don't need, like, anybody can do it. You can learn how to do it barefoot. You can do it anywhere you go. This is why it's great for somebody who has a job that travels a lot, right? If I really loved, I don't know, ice hockey, it would be hard when I, like, have to fly to Abu Dhabi, right? But, like, I can do, I can just head out of the hotel and run wherever I am. I can run any day I want because it's such a simple sport. You just bring shorts and shoes and off you go, which is part of why I love it so much. Um, I probably increased the volume actually a little bit. I started running. I had, I think last fall, I mean, I think my old marathon cycles, I probably never hit 60. And then last fall, I hit mid 60s. And then I hit, I hit 70 a couple times this winter. I think I might even hit 80 one week by accident. Um, so it's definitely increased as I've increased the intensity. So we'll see whether that's a benefit or whether I crash and burn tomorrow. All right, we did it. Another episode in the books. Thank you so much for listening in. Really hope you enjoyed it. Also, thank you to Tracksmith for hosting this conversation and supporting the podcast. Tracksmith is an independent running brand based in Boston, Massachusetts that was founded by a dedicated group of runners whose focus is on building technical yet understated running apparel that celebrates our sports amateur spirit and inspires the personal pursuit of excellence. Check out tracksmith.com slash Mario. That's my name. And take a peek at some of my favorite new pieces for spring. And hey, spruce up your wardrobe a little bit. I'd also like to thank my man, John Summerford of bearsrecords.com. He takes care of all my audio needs for this show, including the music, which he produced himself. And he's a big part of my small team here at the morning shakeout. Two more things before we wrap up. If you want to support the podcast, please go to the podcast app that you're listening to this on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, whatever it is, and leave a rating and a review. It would really mean a lot to me, helps new listeners to discover the show, and it is the easiest way to show your support. And finally, if you're digging the podcast, I encourage you to sign up for my newsletter. It's also called The Morning Shakeout at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe. And you'll get my weekly take on what's happening in the world of running, along with a collection of things that I've been thinking about, reading, and listening to that I think you'll enjoy getting in your inbox every Tuesday morning. Okay, that's it for this week. I'm Mario Fraioli, and you've been listening to The Morning Shakeout Podcast. Podcast.